Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. All right, if you would turn with me to Psalm chapter 40. Uh, you're unfamiliar with the Bible and the beginning of your Bible or the table of contents, you can always look there. But the book of Psalms is right in the middle of the Bible. It's divided into chapters and verses, and we're in the 40th chapter of the book of Psalms, and we'll be looking at all 17 uh, verses. So Pastor Jeff gave you a good intro. Uh, if you'll maybe remember the last three weeks, Psalms 37, 38, 39, they're very depressing. In fact, David's sorrow, his sin, his enemies, his sickness are so acute that the last word of these psalms, if you look at it, 39, 13, this is what he's saying to God. Just look away from me. Just let me be. Would you? Look away from me. I want to smile again. <laughs> That's what he's saying to God. Now, because God has been disciplining him. So look away there doesn't mean I don't want any more of your grace. Look away there means like relieve your discipline, please. So right away, here you run into something that we as Christians work really hard to lie about. Because God is just a vending machine who only gives you treats, right? He's just nice, and the bad things come from the bad guy. They don't come from God. God is just nice. God just does nice things. And if I'm a nice boy or a nice girl, then God will be nice to me. And here's the psalmist. This is David. This is one of the heroes of the Bible. Saying to God, your discipline for my sin is so severe, the pain is so bad that I wish you would just look away from me. I'm so depressed. I just want to smile again. So just stop, please. Is that God your God? Is your theology, your understanding of God, is that part of it? Why does it need to be part of it? Well, first, it's because that's who God is. He's a father who disciplines his children. He hates sin. It offends him. He loves us. He knows the destruction that sin brings to our lives and the lives of others. And so he will often discipline us severely. That's one reason. The second is because then if you can see the discipline of God, the heavy hand of God's loving fatherly discipline upon you, when you get relief, you'll be ready to sing like in Psalm 40. One of the reasons Christians are so half-hearted in their worship of God is because they have no conception of how bad their sin is and how much God hates it. And so when the news of Jesus' forgiveness of your sins comes, you're like, eh? Because I'm just good and God's good and it all works out in the end. You have no reason to sing. You have no feelings of joy because you've not experienced the release of enslavement to sin, of condemnation under sin by God's grace. And so Psalms 37, 38, 39 help you understand 
the depths of sorrow and depression and sadness and fear of God's discipline and the relief that comes in Psalm 40 in the heights of his singing. And that's what the Psalms are for, to help you actually be a Christian. To not just go through the motions of being a Christian. To not just say you're a Christian, but it doesn't really affect your life at all. To not believe the lie that you can live however you want and still have God as your Father. But that you might feel the weight of His fatherly discipline and cry to Him for relief. And then when you experience it, actually be crazy grateful for it in a way that embarrasses the people around you. So that's what we're going to see in Psalm 40. The relief. Praise of God for his answer to prayer. I'm going to read all 17 verses, pray, and then we'll look at this song. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me. He heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock. He made my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man, happy is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Let's pray. Father, you who does not restrain your mercy, please come now and give us life according to your word. Help us to dwell on and delight in all your wonders. When we are tempted to melt in anguish, Sustain us by your grace and make our hearts full of praise and love for you because of what your son has done for us. And it's in his name we ask your help now. Amen. The Bible is, if you can think of it this way, when I use the word story, I don't mean fiction, of course. 
I don't mean man-made. I mean story in the sense that it's got a central point and it's coherent from beginning to end. That's the Bible. If you read a good story, it's got a central plot. Its characters are compelling and it sustains the story from beginning to end. It makes sense with each other. That's the Bible. Of course, the central plot is God's glory in sending His Son to die in our place to save us from our sins and to make us new. That's the central plot. And the entire Bible from beginning to end is about that. And it all sticks together. And it might surprise you to realize how important songs are in God's salvation story. Right in the middle of the story are 150 songs given to God's people to learn to sing as a part of being characters in his story of saving you from destruction. We get to sing. We all get to sing. Sometimes our songs will be sad. Sometimes our songs will be very, very glad. Psalm 40 is one of the glad ones. With a little sadness at the end. So as I said, Psalms 37 and 39 are depressing. God has been disciplining David. He's got enemies who are plotting and taking advantage of his weakness. He's being persecuted. There's sickness. God is disciplining him in all of these ways for his sin. He's afraid that that will be the end of the story. And so as I said, it ends on a depressing note. Look away from me that I may, spot, um, that I may smile again before I depart him and no more. And then you turn to Psalm 40. He heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit, out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon the rock. He put a new song in my mouth. So, the cancer has been healed. The relationship has been reconciled. The financial trouble has been solved. And he's happy. He's praising God as if he's praising him for the first time. That's what this new song is. But don't neglect the three laments that come before it. It is not unspiritual for a Christian to lament, to be sad, to be full of sorrow and fear, and to learn to sing those sad songs too. But God is a God who saves. God is a God who rescues you from your Sadness and sorrow and fear. That's what Psalm 40 is. It's a song of deliverance. God has come. God has saved. Now this is both true eternally and temporally. Eternally, God has saved through the work of His Son. We'll see this with the connection in Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10. What news? You were born in sin. You're way more wicked than you could ever imagine. And God didn't destroy you, but his son in your place on the cross. He has saved you. Amen? That's the good news. That's the ultimate good news in Psalm 40. So a Christian has no excuse to grumble and complain and whine, to gossip about each other, because Jesus has saved us. That's at the heart of Psalm 40. But it's also true that he has 
hundreds of little temporal salvations in our lives. A child that's really in trouble that God brings out of it and parents are so relieved. Praise God! An illness that threatens life, threatens finances, that is resolved. It's a relief. God answered. Praise God! And God does this in hundreds of ways throughout our lives, again and again and again and again. And Psalm 40 is teaching us how to sing those songs. And as we sing the song, we learn a few things. First, we learn again that God is a trustworthy Savior. Do you know that? There is nothing in your life that He is unwilling to hear about and do something about. Nothing. Don't be so proud. Bring Him everything. Sometimes we as pastors hear from you that there's some trouble in your life, but you didn't want to bother us. You're too busy. And I think in those moments that that's what you think about God, actually. You won't go to Him. You won't go to each other or to us. God is a trustworthy Savior. He's proven it again and again. He draws us out of a pit. He sets our feet upon a rock. We can trust Him. That's the main theme of this psalm. God is a Savior. God is a trustworthy Savior. We read that He multiplies His thoughts towards us in verse 5. He's thinking about you a lot. Not with addition, but with multiplication. And they're not the kind of thoughts that are like your dad or your mom. Always wanting you to do better. He's concerned for us. He's caring for us. He's looking at our ultimate good and working all things towards that end. That's the kind of Savior He is towards you. He's very kind and gentle and compassionate. He's full of mercy. He won't restrain His mercy. That's what we learn first. He's a trustworthy Savior. Second, we learn, and it's summarized in verse 17, in those two words, poor, needy. Don't neglect to remember that God often brings you into difficulty to humble you. To help you to see who you really are. Because we are so tempted to think of ourselves much more highly than we should. This, again, is written by a guy who had way more wealth, way more power, way more prestige than any of you will ever, ever have. This is King David writing. It's the guy who defeated all of his enemies. He was a mighty warrior. He took swords and killed hundreds. He was a man. He had tens of children. He fathered dynasties. He had so much wealth that he set it mostly aside for his son and had millions to live on himself. And his description of himself is poor, needy. We get to the point of thinking pretty big about ourselves. We got it all under control. I need God, but I don't need God. We're independent. We're self-reliant. We can do this. One of the reasons I like the wilderness trips we take is for portaging. Because it teaches men that they're weak. (laughs) Strong men. 
strong voice. God is constantly communicating to us in our difficulties that we are poor and needy. That's what God requires of you. This is why, we'll get to this in a moment, verses 6 through 8 are shocking. He doesn't want your sacrifices. He doesn't want your performances. He doesn't need you to show off for him. He doesn't need you at all. He doesn't need anything from you. What could you give him? What does he want from you? Honesty. You're poor and needy. Now, I'm not talking about kind of the victimhood mentality of today, where it's just kind of like the prideful demand that everybody do everything for you. That's not what poor and needy means here. This means an actual, honest view of yourself as totally dependent on God. This means that there is nothing you can do to get him to forgive you. There's nothing you can do to get him to love you. He's done it. You bring nothing but need. You're an infant. You're an invalid. You need the younger guys to carry your pack. Because you can't do it. You need God like that. That's the second thing we learn constantly throughout the Psalms. Third, we learn that if you'll recognize those two realities, that God is a faithful, trustworthy Savior, and you're poor and needy, you can actually be happy. Look at verse 4. Blessed is the man. The Bible's very sexist. Did you know that? This isn't for women. I'm just kidding. But now you're paying attention. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. That word blessed is the first word we meet in the psalm, Psalm 1. That word means happy, joyful. It means if God is your trust, if you see him as a trustworthy Savior and you're poor and needy, you can actually find happiness in this miserable world. It's a constant theme in the Psalms. There is a river of delights found in God. There is an eternal summer in knowing God. There is an awesome starry sky in knowing God. There is holding the joy of holding a newborn child in your arms, joy in God. But you won't have that if you don't recognize him as a trustworthy Savior and yourself as poor and needy. So those are the first three. God is a trustworthy Savior. You are a miserable, poor, needy wretch. And joy in God is given to those who recognize those first two. And then fourth, that deserves praise. God deserves our praise. That's what this song is. David says in verse 4 that he's, Got a new song in his mouth. You know what I mean, right? You know what that means? It's the song you see a young man singing, humming when he's met that girl. He's singing the same song, but it's new. It's a song that a businessman sings when the deal goes through. After the months and months of work and negotiation and it's done. It's the song a soldier sings when the War has been won. It's a song a parent sings when the child is succeeding and honoring God and honoring Him. 
It's a new song. It's a happy song. It's a song that can't be kept in. It's leaking out of every fiber. And it's a song sung in God's congregation. It's not a solo song. It's not a private concert song. It's a song that wants to be sung with God's people so that they can feel and experience the newness, the joy, the happiness that you have tapped into in God. And so there's nothing better for a Christian. There's nothing greater, even though it seems so ordinary, to gather with God's people and delight in God's deliverances. David is saying this over and over again. Verse 9, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. I have not restrained my lips. Verse 10, I have not hidden your deliverance. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed it. This is a Christian. Now, this isn't constantly what our lives are like, right? I mean, it'd be nice if we were always at that place. But it wouldn't be new then. This is the pattern, the the changing of the seasons of a Christian. And we need some of those around us who actually are loving and happy in God so that we can look at them and go, I want that again. We need new Christians who have this like cage stage of themselves. They just can't help it. And we all think they're nuts, but oh, do we want more of what they got? Because some of you are so half-hearted right now in your walk with God. You don't really have much expression of thankfulness or gratitude or joy. You're just going through it. So we shouldn't restrain our lips. Now, this, as we can see, is also evangelistic. Look at verse 3. New songs in his mouth, a song of praise to God, and what's the result of that? Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So one of the great evangelistic tools that we have in our arsenal of seeing men and women saved from their sins is our praising of God. And we, as a church, want to be evangelistic. We we don't want to be a isolated refuge that we all hunker down in and are unwelcoming. We want people here who are discovering salvation and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ for the first time. We want a lot of them. We want people that you would rather not have here, right? Because they're messed up. And they're going to take work because you've forgotten that you are like that. And you're way more like that than you'll admit right now. You just, you know, put makeup on the pig's snout. Is that the saying? Is that how that saying goes? Lipstick on a pig? Oh, they're both ugly. And so are you. Right? Spiritually, I mean. You're way more work than you think you are. So this is evangelistic. Our joy in God. So that's what we see in Psalm 40. All right, so The Hobbit. Everybody familiar with that? J.R. Tolkien, The Hobbit. Prelude to Lord of the Rings. You remember when Gandalf puts that mark on Bilbo's door and then all the dwarves show up and they're eating and they start singing a song. The dwarves do. And it's a mysterious song. It contains 
history of what has gone on, but also this promise of a recovery of what the dwarves have lost, a prophecy. So Psalm 40 is something like that. It's singing the joy of deliverance in God, but right in the middle of this song, right, right smack dab in the middle, verse 6, 7, and 8, are this mysterious, these mysterious lines that if you read them carefully, you think there's something more here. You don't know quite what it is. You can't describe it perfectly accurately, but there's something more. Let me read these again. Verses 6 through 8. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. All right. What has God required of Israel foremostly? What do they have to do? And there's whole books in great detail written about how they're supposed to go about them, when they're supposed to go about them, who's supposed to do them, what kind they're supposed to do. I mean, it's just filled up in the Old Testament. Sacrifices. And here's the psalmist singing, you don't take any delight in them. (laughs) He goes on. Burnt offering, or yeah, burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. What? It's like, that's all that he's required. How how can he say God takes no delight and doesn't require the very thing that he spent whole books of the Bible in great detail describing those books of the Bible that you struggle to read because of all the detail of all the sacrifices, right? And here's the psalmist singing in a song of high deliverance of God's glory. You don't delight in them and you don't require them. What's going on? Continues, then I said, behold, I have come. Like there's a, there's a new person in this psalm. The psalm is suddenly first person. It's not you, it's, it's not us, it's I have come. And he doesn't require offering, he doesn't want sacrifice. It's written in the book, in verse 8, no sacrifice, no offering, but just doing God's will. That's our delight. And so if you were a little Hebrew boy singing this psalm, verses 6 through 8 would have been very important. Cloudy, mysterious, but something far more is going on here than some circumstance in David's life. There's something far greater here. One of the things to know about God's word is you have these kind of things all the time. You have these songs that sing the salvation of God that have these mysterious parts that are later in scripture fully explained. Because this would have been a struggle. What do you mean no sacrifices? Sacrifices aren't going to matter? And who is this guy who comes? What does it mean that he comes to delight to do God's will? Yeah, King David is this, but it's something far greater than King David. Well, turn to Hebrews 10. Later on in the Bible, very clearly, you see this. Now, the book of Hebrews is way towards the end of your Bible, past Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, past Romans, past all of Galatians, Ephesians, just keep going. Once you get to the five T books, for a second, that's only for like Timothy, Titus, then you'll find Hebrews. 
So if you turn to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10 is the heart of the book of Hebrews. It's like the central part of this very important book. It's where the main argument of salvation through faith in the death of Jesus Christ alone is put up and no more sacrifices. And right in the middle of it, he quotes these verses from Psalm 40. So let me just read from verse 1. For since the law, that is, the law here refers to God's rules in the Old Testament, particularly regarding the temple and sacrifice. So since the law of God is just a shadow, it's but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities. Right? So these sacrifices in the temple are just a shadow. There's something far greater, far firmer, truer, realer coming. Since that's so... These sacrifices, these laws can never, by the same sacrifices continually offered, make perfect those who draw near. You see what's going on here? That's ending. The sacrifices are ending. Why? Because they had to be constantly repeated, and they didn't actually forgive your sins. They didn't actually make you new. Otherwise, in verse 2, they would have ceased to have been offered, since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have to... Have any conscience of sin, right? If the sacrifice forgave your sin and cleansed your conscience, you wouldn't have to keep doing them. But the, that you have to keep doing them tells you that something far greater is coming. Something far more permanent is coming. But, verse 3, what good are the sacrifices? Well, they remind you of your sin. They remind you of your poverty and need before God. For it is impossible, in verse 4, for the blood of Bulls and goats take away sin. Here it is. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, quoting verse Psalm 40, sacrifice offering you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. Here he is. He's the, he's the mysterious figure in Psalm 40. He's the true king of God's people. He's got a body given to him by God for a purpose. Burn offerings, sin offerings, there's no pleasure of God in. Jesus came to do the will of God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, when he said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then he added, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. No more temple. No more sacrificing animals. All of the laws regarding the temple and sacrifice under Israel are done. They only serve to function to tell you how much you need Jesus. But now that Jesus has come, no more of that. So what do you need to go to God? Look at verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Right in the middle of Psalm 40, delighting in God's salvation is Christ. The single sacrifice for all time, perfecting those who are being sanctified. Notice that language. Perfecting those who are being sanctified. We simultaneously are forgiven of all of our sins and so righteous before God with Christ's righteousness and still having a lot of repentance and hatred of our sin to go still being sanctified. And so Psalm 40 is a song of salvation 
that reminds us that our salvation is only found in Christ and not in our works. That's it. And so we sing. But how does Psalm 40 end? They live happily ever after. Right? It's sad again. The end of Psalm 40 again is sadness. Be pleased, verse 13, or verse 12. Evils have encompassed me again. My iniquities, my sin have overtaken me. Isn't that helpful to you as a Christian? David was delivered out of the pit. Now he's back in it. His own sin. Not saying that we should excuse our sin. But it is helpful to be reminded that in this age, you will continue to sin. You should hate it. You should grieve it. You should have great sorrow over it. But that is the reality. And so he's calling on God again. Verse 13, deliver me. Please make haste to help me. He's got enemies. May they be put to shame. Verse 13, or 14 and 15. And then, I want those who seek you to have joy, but now for me in verse 17, I'm poor and needy. Do not delay, oh my God. You are my help and my deliverer. Don't forget, in this world you have trouble. It is through many trials and tribulations that you will enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't be surprised that you're suffering. Don't be surprised that your workplace is very difficult. Don't be surprised that you're one of the difficulties of your workplace. Don't be surprised that parenting will rip your guts out. Don't be surprised when your marriage is miserable and that you're often the source of the misery. That's this world, isn't it? It's God's good, loving discipline to teach us our poverty and our need to cry out to him again and again and again and again. In Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian is told by the evangelist that he needs to flee from the city of destruction to Christ, two companions go with him right away. One is, uh, I can't think of his name, he's very stubborn, obstinate. And, and he's trying to convince Christian not to leave, and he turns back right away. Another guy is pliable. And he hears Christian telling him all the good things that God promises if you'll go to Christ. And he's just enjoying them. Heaven and forgiveness and all of these good blessings of being a Christian. And then they fall into a, a mucky slow of despond. They're in trouble. And he jumps out of that pit and runs back to the city of destruction. Because the Christian life is always supposed to be happy. No. The Christian life is hard. It's a cross we bear. To make us dependent on God, to show that there is nothing in us. It's all God. And so in a sense, Christians are the weirdest people in the world. We delight in our weaknesses. So we might depend on God and show it's all his strength. It's all his goodness. It's none of our own. Right? Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us to learn to sing these songs of your salvation. Songs of lament, crying to you out of great poverty and need for your mercy. And so God, for those here who are in great need, 
Would you not delay, O God? Don't restrain your mercy from them. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver them. For those who are proud, who are living very self-sufficiently, looking down on others, would you humble their pride, God, and teach them again their need for you? God, for those of us who are rejoicing, may others rejoice with us. May we give you all praise and glory because you are the source of all good. Happy are those, God, who put their trust in you. And so, God, teach us to sing. Teach us to delight in your salvation in Christ. Teach us to cry out for help when we need it. God, help us not to be convinced that this life is to be a bed of roses, but will often be very difficult, that we might rely on you and not on ourselves. And so, God, to you be all glory. We praise you that you will hold us firm until the end, that nothing can pluck us from your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The charge is this. Put away grumbling and instead express out loud gratefulness to God. Think on all of the wonders he does for you. Think on his thoughts multiplied in kindness and compassion towards you. And then tell each other about that way more than you do about that which you don't like. May you wait patiently for the Lord and may he incline his ear to you and hear your cry and draw you up from the pit and make your steps secure. May all who sing to him a new song find more joy in him. May they be protected from turning to the proud or going after lies. May all who seek the Lord rejoice and be glad in him. May those who love his salvation say continually, great is the Lord. May all who love his salvation say continually, none can compare with you. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord and I love you.